Welcome, friends. This is Historical AF. I'm Kenneth. And I'm Ashley. And I'm Erica. We are historian and some special guests delivering you and me. Well, literally everything today because it's the 100th episode. (laughs) (laughs) 100 episodes. It's a fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. We're so excited. So this episode, we will have all six segments with guests for each one. It's going to be insane. So we're going to have people popping in, popping out. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be insane. Really sums up the whole experience. Insane that talking about a dick joke could turn into a podcast, Ashley. <laughs> right. I know. Of all the historical jokes we've had over the years with each other, it for dicks to take off. <laughs> this is the best way to go, though. It is. It is. It's been fun, you know, and it's evolved. It's been almost two years since episode one with Easter. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh, it has because it was April of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And that's like <laughs> around the time that I started too. Yeah. yeah. And we've been, unfortunately, we've been on hiatus for the last year because of COVID and, and work schedules and everything, mm-hmm. life and stuff. So, but we have a little cheers from the grave baby coming. Yes, we do. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Yay! Little boy. Little Cheers boy. (laughs) For those who don't know, I'm Erica and I'm from Cheers from the Grave. Small podcast with uh, two co-hosts of mine, Stephanie and Nicole, who unfortunately were not able to join us tonight. I believe you guys were our first guest ever because you came on for the Halloween episode. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I believe so. And we got spooky. We kind of traveled this podcast universe together for a while and... Yeah. Kind of became sister podcasts and friends in real life that I've never met. Yes. We will whenever the world opens again. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, when the world decides to stop being lame, then yes, one day. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, God damn it, COVID. I hate it. (sighs) Anyway, this is a happy, happy time. Yay. Sorry. 100 episodes. Yes. Let's celebrate the fact that you guys are on 100 episodes. Like, that is such a milestone. It's been such a a crazy ride. And it's been the craziest ride of them all. Like, I'm in a new state. (laughs) But, like, Tina's gone through co host after co host. And (laughs) it's been an evolution. But she's made so many amazing new friends and connections. And I'm yes. Kina, you are, seriously, you are amazing. And like oh. the fact that you just power through everything, like you are so badass. Yes. Like yes. your work ethic just astounds me. And I'm just like, I right? wish I had your drive. Because if I had your drive and your like focus on this thing, I'm just astounded by you. You're amazing. Right. Yeah. Like I've been jealous of Kina's work ethic since I worked at the library with her. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably the one thing about myself that I really do like. It's very stressful how hard I push, but yeah, I can tell. But I think it also helps that this podcast really probably saved me (laughs) from, you know, moving to a new state, not having friends, not having a job and then not being able to get a job because everything went to shit. It's been a lifesaver for me. It's got me sane. It's helped me feel like I'm using my degree. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like otherwise, I don't know what I would do with myself if I didn't have something where I could do history and feel like I'm making an impact in some sort of way in the world. 
been a journey. Every guest has been so amazing and so fun yeah. and so interesting. And I feel like I've made so many friends. Yeah, like the podcast family is just, it's such a weird, eclectic, amazing family. It's just awesome to watch. Yeah, it is. And then a special shout out to Patreon because the little community that we've built in Patreon is more than we could have ever imagined in the beginning of this. You guys are legit family. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, real it's pretty, it's, it's a pretty cool community. I enjoy it. It there. is. We have our groups. We have our Discord. We have a bunch of group chats going. <laughs> like it's, just, <laughs> it's just so much fun. And it's also awesome to see everybody together being real friends and talking yeah. about, you know, meeting up someday when the world's not on fire. And it's just been so cool. And everybody's so supportive of each other. Makes me so emotional sometimes. <laughs> right? Aww. Like if somebody's having a bad time, how everybody just rallies to cheer them up. Oh, I just love it so much. So yeah. And you, and you know what? And you guys were the ones that started that. Yeah. Like you guys were the ones that were able to bring us all together and have that community. And it's just amazing and we can we thank you for it oh yeah so yeah, i just awesome. don't i don't know what i do without you guys i feel like i know you all personally which i know is weird for internet stuff <laughs> i really do <laughs> i think it was the example we do the christmas gift exchange and i think somebody yeah i think Rafat forgot to put something on her gift thing so i just told her secret saying i'm like she likes this this and this and Rafat was like of course you would know me better than anybody else <laughs> <laughs> it's like i feel like i know them all it was like it's just so fun Aww. you're such a kind and benevolent ruler oh thanks i try but you know what's really really cool about reaching 100 episodes hmm. is that i'll mention the podcast to like strangers in stores like i went to hot topic and i mentioned something about the podcast to Terry while we were in the store and the worker was like, Oh, what podcast? I was like, Oh, it's called historical AF. And she was like, Oh, I've heard of that. What? <laughs> and I was like, girl, Oh my God. Like I got so excited and that's happened Aww. several times. Even Kino will mention it. Oh, I have a podcast on like a group and someone will say, Oh, what is it? I want to listen. And she'll say it. And they're like, Oh, I'm already subscribed to that. That's awesome. And it's like, that's great. Like, that is so cool. That's amazing. I get that. It's so surreal, though. It is funny. They're like, wait, you're that, Kena? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is me. It's it's fun. I still think it's hilarious when people like DM and I respond and they're like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) We are just so thankful for everybody that's listened and has stuck around. Like I said, it's been a journey, (laughs) an evolution. But so many people have been here since the beginning. Yeah. It's, yes. it's just wild. So. It's so awesome to watch you guys, seriously. And just to watch you just like grow and evolve and flourish. And it just, oh, it makes me so happy and proud. Thank I you. know. It's, it's so been fun. So fun. It's been a joy, a joy that we needed. <laughs> it's yeah. definitely a bright spot. It's been fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's do this thing let's start with yes. some spooky stories sure okay. and i don't think i've even mentioned it yet the theme is 100 yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun <laughs> i don't know what this is but <laughs> oh it's the little inflatable guy i don't know why i'm doing that celebration Wacky inflatable arm tube man yeah 100 okay so Kina came to me and she was like, hey, do you want to do the spooky, my hundred episodes? And I'm like, sure. And then I'm like, what the fuck am I going to talk about? 
And so the other day, Stephanie came over and hung out with me for a while and we just kind of chilled. And so on our way to get lunch, I told her about this and I asked if she, you know, she was going to join and she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I need to find a story that is based around a hundred. And she's like, okay. So like, as we're driving back, as we're like literally sitting in traffic, because someone decided that it would be a good time to have an accident in the middle of town. Mm. So we're sitting in traffic. She's got sushi and McDonald's on her lap and she's got her phone in the other hand and she's looking and she's like, what about the hundred candles game? So she read me a little blurb on it. I'm like, that's pretty cool. Never a game I would play though. (laughs) Because I don't want to burn my house down, nor do I want demons in my home. So very fair points. Yes. I'm like counting how many candles I have in my house before we even start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first and foremost, it is a game. It's a Japanese game. And it's dated back basically to the 1600s. Oh, wow. The original story was how several young samurai would play a game called, I'm going to butcher this, so I apologize to everybody and anybody. (laughs) You can do it. Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, I should have asked my friend Yuko this before I left work today. Hayakumanogatari Kaden Kai. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was awful, but thanks. That was amazing. (laughs) So each samurai will tell a story in succession, and at the end of every story, they would extinguish a candle. At the extinguishing of a final candle, a giant hand appears to come down from above. And with a swipe of a sword, the hand is revealed to be a shadow of a spider. And those who shuddered in fear were then to be held up in mockery. So it's kind of like a game of courage. But the thing is, is that that kind of a game gained popularity within the warrior class to like test their courage. But then it gained more popularity within the working class and the peasants and the townspeople. And then until it was just played everywhere in Japan. So the game is played as follows. Now, I'm going to say this right now as a PSA. I suggest not to do this because we all (laughs) know that you're tempting fate and I cannot be held responsible for Mm -hmm. your actions. So if you do this, don't come at me. If you enjoy it, bring a demon to your house, don't come at me. Yeah, your demon, your problem. (laughs) Yeah, your demons, your problems, not mine. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So the game is played as follows. You have to play it before nightfall. It's played as night would fall upon the region, in a sense, and you have to have three separate rooms. Preparation, participants would light 100 candles in the third room and then position a single mirror on the surface of a small table. When the sky was at its darkest, guests would gather in the first of the three rooms, taking turns telling tales of ghoulish encounters and reciting folklore, basically tales that would be passed down by villagers who claimed to experience supernatural encounters. So basically, boards of our... That's yeah, I mean, I mean, that really <laughs> does sound really cool. Like, you would sit yeah. there and just basically tell each other ghost stories, which yeah. is really yeah. cool. But this thing is at the end of every story, the storyteller would have to enter the third room and extinguish a candle and then look in the mirror and then make their way back to the first room. And then oh. so with each passing tale, slowly the room would get darker and darker oh. and darker. And when that happens, the veil between worlds tends to, like, as they say, we get thinner and thinner and thinner. I'm going first. (laughs) Right? How do you choose who goes last? (laughs) 
So here's the thing. So then, it would, of course, it would create like a safe haven for the spirits to come through and everything like that. However, nine times out of 10, they would stop at the 99 tail. And oh. many participants would stop fearful of evoking spirits that they've been summoning. Oh, yeah. Trixie. However, apparently there's a rule where if like someone in the group was like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. They can decide to stop if they want to. But they're not allowed to actually leave. Like they have to stay there until the game is finished <laughs> or unless everybody else decides to chicken out. So either oh. way, you're kind of fucked. <laughs> Just yeah. Try. Mm-hmm. But what's really cool about this is that as I was kind of looking into it, like it started a booming printing business in the Edo era of Japan because a lot of stories, like people would be like, oh, I, got, I want to get these stories published. Also, in some ways, you know how like America in the 1900s had kind of like that seance phase? Yeah. That was kind of their phase. Oh, okay. so it was their version of like our seance phase. Oh, oh like spiritualism? Mm hmm. So that was kind of like their spiritualist type thing that they had. Yeah. This also kind of jumps into like modern day. So there's been a lot of graphic novels that have, that have acknowledged this. There's been short films. I saw a YouTube thing too, as I was looking this out, something about like, oh yeah. And if you do this, you're going to summon this guy named Smudge Mouth. And there's this YouTube Mm -hmm. of this guy that was like getting stalked by this Smudge Mouth. It's basically creepypasta. I love creepypasta. I love them, but they creep me out. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's, as I said, it's short and sweet. And it's a game that I will never play. I know what I'm doing when I can't sleep tonight. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently, there's one that's a shorter version. It's like that involves 10 candles instead. But still, I would never, ever tempt the fates like that. I'm still Mm kind of iffy about wanting to play the Ouija board. I've done it before. yeah. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever do it again, even yeah. though it's tempting. <laughs> but yeah, spoiler alert, we're gonna talk about the Ouija board next week. Ooh, yes. It's exciting. I think anything with mirrors is freaky. And I find it really Same. interesting that it is a thing that happened in Japan too. Cause I think I've just yeah. always thought that mirrors was just like a thing in Western culture with like mm. spiritualism and stuff. You know, so that's really cool. You know what my first thought was when my dad passed away in August? My first thought was my mom needs to cover all the mirrors. Yeah. Um, Literally, that was my first thought. And I didn't and I, I didn't voice it and I didn't tell her that because, you know, but literally my first thought was all the mirrors need to co- be covered. And then my second thought was, Erica, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> you read that story that one time about how they get trapped. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dude, I, I can walk through my entire house in pitch black, no problem. But if I have to walk past one of the mirrors... In the pitch black, I run. I can't. I don't know what it is. Like, I'm not afraid of the dark, but I'm afraid of walking past a mirror in the dark. I can't do mirrors. Like, I can't even look outside a dark window. Like, I have Mm -hmm. to have it covered. When we first moved into this house, we didn't have blinds on our back slider door Mm -hmm. for a solid, like, two weeks. That was the worst two weeks of my life. (laughs) Yeah. No. Well, that was really cool. I've never heard of that game before. Yeah. That's fascinating. All of these like Japanese games, like the elevator game and all of that, yeah, they're really fascinating. That's what I was thinking. They scare yeah. the crap out of me. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Japanese horror in general and their scary stories are so terrifying. Yeah. But they're phenomenal, though. Like, they're seriously, so they do good. it so well. 
they got yeah. a good like psychological aspect i think yeah too. And it just really terrifies you yeah 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 they fucked me up big time Never, you'll never see me. I will never do that. But I mean, I will be more than happy to play with dousing rods and I'll play yep. with my EMF reader and yeah. stuff like that. Like, no problem. It's for science. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 But never, never the Ouija board or anything like that. Or yeah. even this. Yeah. It's terrifying. I've well, got we- my, my Ouija planchette tattoo, but I don't want to play with a Ouija board itself. Don't fuck with demons. Nope. Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. 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 You want yeah. demons because that's how you get demons. Yeah. <laughs> Trademark. TM. 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 Shop.spreadshirt.com slash cheers from the grave. Yeah. Is it spelled out or abbreviated? It is spelled out. Cheers from the grave. Okay. Yeah. So definitely if you want. uh, Or there's one. Uh, I got 99 problems. Oh, and they're all paranormal. What is it? Yep. Yeah. yeah, and they're all paranormal, yeah. Oh, yeah, and uh, thanks to Kina, because Kina's the one that actually designed, like, 99% of our merchandise, because she is phenomenal and stuff. <laughs> we're well, like- <laughs> it was their idea, and they were good ideas, and I love them all. I did. While recording our podcast, there would be some episodes where we would come up with this, like, really cool thing, and we're like, Kina, make a shirt of it. Like, in the episode, we're like, Kina, make a shirt, make a shirt. Wasn't it the <laughs> duck, the poultry geese? The poultry yeah, geese. The poultry I geese. just <laughs> But yeah, I absolutely love your podcast and I can't wait till life, you know, allows yeah, well, for it to come back. We'll come back. Well, thank you so much for being our first guest on this magical special episode. Yeah, no problem. Love you so much. Oh, well, oh. I love you guys too so much. And thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Thank oh, you so much for letting me be here. Hi. 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 How you guys doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. So our next guest is Himlock from TikTok again. Oh, I'm so excited you're back. Your, your episode was so good. And yes, everybody was. was so impressed, which is how much you know off the top of your head, myself included. <laughs> it's just a lot of research. Anybody can do it. I'm just such a fan of you and your TikToks. Huge fan. Huge Thanks. fan. We're big, big nerds. We love We're you. We're big nerds. Like, um, what, do you, what do you call your fans? Uh, Himlockies? <laughs> homies. Hemlock homies. Hemlock homies. Oh, yeah. We're definitely way up there. We're Hemlock homies for sure. We really are. We send each other your videos all the time. Yes. Kina actually told me about your TikToks on a recording of the podcast (laughs) while we're sitting here talking to Patreon. I'm like looking you up and watching videos and I'm just like, yeah, we're going to be best friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to go ahead and jump in and do this thing? I do. I do. I'm really excited about your story. So, because our topic was 100, because of the 100th episode, I had no idea what to do. (laughs) But, so I started, like, kind of Googling around and trying to look up, like, 100-year anniversaries and stuff like that. And I found a list of the Times top 100 women that they've covered for cover stories. And anyone who's listened to the podcast since the beginning knows that I love a badass woman Mm -hmm. and a strong woman. So I chose one from there that I had no idea about. Like I'd heard about some of the women and they're really, they're all fascinating. And I recommend that anyone goes and looks them up. But I found one that was fascinating so I'm going to talk a little bit about Jane Fawcett and the female codebreakers from World War II. Ooh. 
So it's really cool. It's mostly Jane Fawcett, but it's some of her work that she's done. She was a very fascinating woman, and I was very happy to find her. So it's a lot of moving parts, so I'll jump around just a little bit, but hopefully y'all can stay with me. Also, I just got diagnosed with ADHD, so it explains a lot. But anyway. Kitty buddies! Yes! So, um, Jane Fawcett was born Janet Hughes on March 4th of 1921 in London. In London, she attended Miss Ironside School for Girls, and she studied ballet, like, her entire life. Oh, wow. But at 17, she was deemed to be too tall to be a professional dancer. Can't relate. So that ended her career. Aw. Can you imagine your entire life preparing for this and then just going, you're too tall? Aw. Well, I tried ballet because I was a chunky kid. My mom was like, let's do dance, you know, (laughs) because... Now I'm like, oh, yeah, I was a fat kid. She was trying to get me to exercise. (laughs) Yeah, for me, it was gymnastics. But yeah, I remember them being like, you're too tall for this. And I was like, well, I don't want to do this anymore because I immediately (laughs) shut down. (laughs) Well, yeah, so she was too tall. So then she got sent to Zurich to learn German. And after she did this, she lived in a ski resort for a while. But six months after that, she was sent for by her family to come back to London to have her debut as a debutante in social society, which she did for her family's sake. But she was quoted as saying that the society life was a complete waste of time. So at the invitation of a friend, she applied to the Bletchley Park Project in February of 1940. So basically, when she was like 17, 18, she received a letter from her friend And it said, and I quote, I'm at Bletchley and it's perfectly frightful. We're so overworked, so desperately busy. You must come join us. So she went like me. I'd be like, that sounds terrible. I'm not going. (laughs) She went looking for a job because they were hiring people who were fluent in German. And this was at the height of World War II. And so they were bringing people in to decode. She goes, and so Bletchley Park, it's 50 miles outside of London, and it's an English country home that was the principal center of Allied code breaking during the Second World War. It's really fancy. After the war, it goes on. It was taken over by the post office for a while. It has like a long storied history. It was built in 1883 for Sir Herbert Leon. It's in the Victorian Gothic, Tudor, and Dutch Baroque styles. Look how fancy it is. Wow. Can you imagine working there? No, I cannot. <laughs> yes. So and we'll have photos on social media and the website, or you can join Patreon. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Yes. So Bletchley Park housed the government code and cipher school, also called GCCS. And um, most notably, they cracked German Enigma and Lawrence ciphers. So the Enigma mm. machine and the Lawrence machine were these really cool cipher machines that were created by the Germans to code their messages to send from army to air force to navy and all of that during the war. My sister would be so jealous if she knew that this is what we were discussing right now because she's actually been in the Enigma machine. Yeah, <sighs> grandfather, like she did some kind of school trip and he went along with her. And they stayed after a few days and, and they went there together. And I'm still salty. Oh, oh, man. And seeing the ending machine without me. Oh, my gosh. Salty about it. I would oh, be, man. too. 
Alan Turing is a name that's really common when you hear about the Enigma machine. He is kind of credited with like cracking code. There's even a movie called The Imitation Game that is about the Enigma machine. So a lot of people will know it from pop culture from that. But the official historian of British intelligence, which is a job I want, said that the work done at Bletchley's shortened the war by two to four years, which is huge. Wow. Yes. So 12,000 people were employed at Bletchley Park, 8,000 of which were women. Oh, wow. Yes. How have I not known that? We get the job done. Oh, we get get it. Right? (laughs) Like women... We lock it down. Jane was in hut six with an all-female team. Alan Turing was in hut eight at this time. The women's jobs were to monitor communications from the Jeremy Armin and Air Force. Jane said in an interview in 2015 that conditions were not ideal. There were leaky windows. It was super cold. She said the stove in the room gave off a lot of fumes, but not much heat. And there was just one bare light bulb hanging from a string for light, which was really inadequate. Wow. Uh, which you wouldn't expect looking at the pictures, but I guess they were like intense. Oh. So it was just, it was just real weird. So she said in her own words, we were always working against time. There was always a crisis, a lot of stress and a lot of excitement. I would legitimately just like sit in a corner and cry. Yeah. Like I have so much respect for these women because I would have a panic attack every single day. I mean, that's a level of pressure. I don't know any of us could even imagine. Yeah, like, knowing the world war is right? what is on the line. That yes, so many lives every day. Oh, that's so much pressure. It's nuts. And a blanket, like. Mm-hmm. I would need like a safe space, but anyway. So <laughs> May 1941, the British Navy was searching for the Bismarck, which was Germany's most formidable battleship which was last spotted in Norway, but then they had lost track of it. Jane was transcribing an intercepted message from the Luftwaffe, which was German Air Force, when she noticed they mentioned the French city of Brest. In a reply to an Air Force general whose son was stationed on the Bismarck, an officer noted the ship was on the way to Brest for repairs. She immediately took this to the supervisors, and within a day, U.S. Navy spotted the Bismarck in the Atlantic Ocean, 700 miles off the coast of Brittany. Oh, wow. British warplanes and naval vessels rushed there, and they sunk the Bismarck on May 27th, 1941. So it's huge. The The German warship was sunk yeah. because of what she heard, and thus killing more than 2,000 German crew members that were on board. Wow. This marked the first instance of a British codebreaker decrypting a message that led directly to a battle victory. When the news came that it was sunk... They cheered for the news at Bletchley Park, but under Britain's Official Secrets Act, which imposed a lifetime prohibition on revealing any code-breaking activities, her actions weren't revealed until the late 1990s. Oh, my God. didn't even tell her husband. Can you imagine having to keep that to your grave, essentially, like, that you... Well, and here's what gets me. So her husband was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And this is what she said about like doing all of this and having to keep it a secret and then it all coming out. So she's quoted as saying, my husband had been in the Navy and done all these heroic things in every quarter. So, of course, we all talked about him and those brilliant young adventurers who saved Britain, well, saved the world. 
So when everything we had done, which we knew had been very hard work and incredibly demanding, suddenly showed its head and we were being asked to talk about it, it felt quite overwhelming. I'd never told a soul, not even my husband. My grandchildren were very surprised. Oh, man. Can you imagine like you're sipping tea with your Nana? eating cookies. And then all of a sudden she's like, by the way, I helped sink a German battleship. Wow. One day it comes out that, you know, grandma was in a battle where 2000 German soldiers lost their lives. And they were just like, wow, don't piss off grandma. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Damn, granny, you're a badass. Right. This is an aside, but it made me think like my dad's cousin. She's a super duper sweet lady. But she was telling me the other day how One time this girl was threatening to beat up her granddaughter and her granddaughter was like, I know mama's mad because she got up and put on a bra. (laughs) And so like, I think of that, like, is it bra level or can we just like tone it down? Oh, I was taking a drink when you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Rest in peace, Takina. Last episode. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so the thing is, being an awesome German translating codebreaker isn't her only claim to fame. So after Bletchley Park, when she left in May 1945, uh, she married Edward Fawcett. And somewhere through there, she dropped the T on her name, Janet, and changed it to Jane. And she went on to train at the Royal Academy of Music. From then to the early 60s, Jane spent 15 years in a career as an opera singer. In 1963, she took an executive position on the board of the Victorian Society, which was founded in 1957 as a heritage preservation organization dedicated to preserving Victorian architecture. Her nickname became the Furious Mrs. Fawcett, which is like major goals. Oh, yes. For fighting against British Rail to preserve historic railway stations. Wow. Love it. Right? So she was instrumental in preserving London's St. I think this is Pancras Station and the Midland Grand Hotel, which is now known as the St. Pancras Renaissance London Hotel. She also saved much of London's Whitehall from destruction. Oh, my gosh. So that's really cool. And then in 1976, Jane was appointed to the MBE, which is the most excellent order of the British Empire, which is huge. It's the It rewards contributions to arts and sciences, work with charitable and welfare organizations, and public service outside of the civil service. Because she already had so much time on her hands. Through all that, she had two kids. And then she died in 2016 at the age of 95. Oh, wow. Before she died, she wrote and edited books like The Future of the Past, Seven Victorian Architects, The Village in History, and Save the City. And she also starred as herself in a movie titled The Codebreaker Who Hacked Hitler in 2015. Ooh. She is one of... Many, 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 many codebreakers. Like I said, she was one of like 8,000 just working at Bletchley Park. So two other notable codebreakers I stumbled upon in my research is Elizabeth Friedman, who helped save the Queen Mary, which was a supply ship. And she helped capture German spies in Latin America that were hiding out and betraying British secrets. Um, And then Judy Parsons, who was a codebreaker who worked in Washington, D.C., there were a lot of code breakers that worked in Washington, which I didn't know. I thought they were all 
in Britain, but they weren't. <laughs> and then just last point, I found there's a, an author, Liza Mundy, who wrote a really great book, has really great reviews, and it's called Code Girls, The Untold Story of the American Women Codebreakers of World War II. I really want to read it. There's like a lot of really great stories out there for about the code breakers that I just I want to read them all now and I want to do even more research. But like it was really cool to find out about her because I had heard just like a little bit about code breakers, but I mean they like did so much more. Oh yeah. And imagining like we talked about before, that kind of pressure on that job and and the PTSD that must have come with it and yes. holding on to that and not being able to talk about it for the rest of your life. Like you can't get therapy if you can't talk about it. Right. Yes. That's like, such a good point. Tough. I even thought about that. Like I would definitely need therapy after that. But if you can't, if you're sworn by law not to talk about it, then like what can you do? Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I find it interesting too. You know, a lot of people that go into science and math and the numbers that are good with code breaking are like one side brain, but she was into the arts too. So both sides of her brain were just fucking insane. That is so big brain energy, right? Big brain energy. It doesn't happen often that people can be excellent at both things, being artistic and sciencey. That's so cool. Yes. What a badass. Renaissance woman. Yes. Like what an awesome lady. And I like encourage everyone to, if you're like me and have insomnia and just want to Google something, (laughs) look up the Enigma machine because it's fascinating. I almost did like four pages of notes just on the Enigma machine before I was like, focus. (laughs) (laughs) I I was getting real off track. Megan from Spooky Science Sisters is back to join us. Our next segment. Oh, I'm so excited you're here. I had so much fun with you before, even though my mom did tell me that she couldn't tell her voices apart other than the accents. Yeah, there's just a slight. You just got the the little bit of a southern twang to it. (laughs) Whereas I'm 100% Midwest, but (laughs) we've been hanging out with Hemlock. And this is Ashley. She was my first co-host. She's a badass librarian. Oh. (laughs) Which is how we met, actually. We were librarians together back in the day. Tina and I talked about history like all the freaking time. And then we got stuck on a dick joke. And here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I came home from thoroughly embarrassing my husband in public. And I was like, okay, this this is hilarious. This should be a podcast. And she's like, let's do it. So, (laughs) Thank you, Rasputin's penis. (laughs) (laughs) put that on a shirt (laughs) thank you Rasputin's (laughs) oh god I wonder if he has any like descendants still alive that are just like please cease and desist right I need like Will Ferrell to do the Ricky Bobby voice and just scream that out like when he's like oh help me baby Jesus like I need him just to scream out like Rasputin's penis yeah I said I didn't know I needed that until you said it yes so real quick Megan refresh everybody about your podcast and then also about you being a real life legit scientist (laughs) (laughs) yes so With my sister in law who isn't able to be here, we do the Spooky Science Sisters podcast, which is a, (laughs) I guess the way we put it is a science based, but also 
incredibly giggly view of various paranormal things. So we talk about aliens and ghosts and we do some like debunking of haunted places and try as much as we can to interview experts and yeah, mostly just laugh a lot and be silly, but (laughs) in like a semi-educational way. (laughs) Um, As long as you keep one thing, it's educational, right? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's the podcast and we've been doing it for like almost a year now. So that's pretty exciting. And I'm a, well, both of us are real life scientists. Um, Paige is a chemist and she works in industry now and is actually like in an environmental health and safety position. And then I am a geochemist and I am a lab manager for a geochemistry lab at Northwestern. So yeah. (laughs) So impressive. (laughs) Women in STEM are my jam. Yes. Yes. I love science. I wanted to be it. And then I'm like number dyslexic and I hate math. So I was like, well, (laughs) this isn't going to happen. I never even took chemistry. I was like, I'm not going to do this because I'm going to blow something up. (laughs) That's the fun part, though. It is the fun part. And I'm going to blow up the chem lab and then I'm going to get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have another spooky tale for us, correct? I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When you originally were like, oh, it's going to be like half an hour. And I was like, well, hopefully there'll be a lot of chit chat because I think this is going to be a short one. But that's okay. (laughs) We got you. (laughs) If anything Um, this podcast is lacking, it is not tangents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you asked about doing something that was 100 themed since this is the 100th episode, I don't know, extravaganza, I guess. (laughs) I forget what you're calling it. Um, But uh, Kina asked that we do something that was science related, maybe spooky, and I typed 1921 ghost story into google and because <laughs> i was like well might as well and this was the top result and it was like literally perfect for tonight so i was like great <laughs> my job is done um, meant to be. <laughs> yeah although since then i like keep noticing like oh there's something else like a hundred themed that could totally work but anyway we're just gonna do this one <laughs> Okay, so what I learned, which was very surprising, was that there was actually a ghost story that got published in a scientific journal, the American Journal of Ophthalmology, in 1921. So, a hundred years ago. Your puppies. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's dinner time. Whoops. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) You guys might hear my my toddler is like also very thrown off by daylight saving time. So, she's like, "Mm, I don't know if it's bedtime yet, parents. So, (laughs) anyway. So this was published by a man named William Wilmer, and it was about the experiences of one of his patients who he just refers to as Mrs. H and her family. And some of the anecdotes that they tell are like very spooky. (laughs) So apparently the family had just moved in to or recently moved in to a new house. And the story itself actually took place in 1912, but it wasn't published until 1921. So I'm cheating a little bit, but it's still whatever. Um, (laughs) 
but they just moved into this this new house, but well, new to them, but it was an older house, I guess was like sort of run down. And a couple sources said that it, you know, may have sat vacant for some time before they moved in. And there are some really great quotes in William Wilmer's article that he wrote about their experiences or like quotes from them that they said. So we're going to read a couple of those. So one of those is, Mr. H and I had not been in the house more than a couple of days when we felt very depressed. The house was overpoweringly quiet. <laughs> and <laughs> so it's not quiet for long, though. <laughs> so then, but- yeah. Then she says, one morning I heard footsteps in the room over my head. I hurried up the stairs. To my surprise, the room was empty. I passed into the next and then into all the rooms on that floor and then to the floor above to find that I was the only person in that part of the house. Sometimes after I've gone to bed, the noises from the storeroom are tremendous as if furniture was being piled against the door, as if China was being moved about and occasionally a long and fearful sigh or wail. Sometimes as I walk along the hall, I feel as if someone was following me, going to touch me. You cannot understand it if you've not experienced it, but it's real. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, um, they're having a real bad time <laughs> in this house. So it's not just the mom. It's not just Mrs. H. It starts to be her whole family. So her husband, her children, their servants. All are hearing noises. All are having these crazy experiences. They point out, like, especially that they're hearing footsteps and strange voices. One of her kids, who they just call B, but who's four years old at the time, comes into Mrs. H's room asking, you know, why she had called out to him. And she hadn't at all. And he had like heard his mom calling. He'd heard this pounding noise. He'd heard, you know, something rattling his window, but nothing <laughs> was there. Yeah, and it wasn't it her. So it's like burning oh, with no. fire. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. <laughs> so it gets worse. And like, oh, I yes. absolutely oh, love that all of this is like in a scientific journal, in a medical journal. Yeah. Um, but they get worse. They start to feel weak. They're experiencing pain and headaches. Their plants were starting to die, which is like, what the hell? Like, this is just extreme horror movie stuff. And then, like, eventually they actually start to see ghosts. (laughs) So that includes waking up paralyzed from deep sleeps and seeing figures sitting at the end of their bed staring at them and feeling like they were being held down oh no (laughs) yes (laughs) and then sitting on the end of the bed like why did they do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) and like that alone to me like on the bed with me yeah no (laughs) no no <laughs> yeah. And like the the sitting on the bed and like feeling like you can't move and stuff, like that alone sounds like pretty classic. And feeling like there's a figure there sounds like pretty classic like sleep paralysis. But it's like when you combine it with everything else, it's like, what the fuck was happening to this? Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Yeah, oh, yes. Totally um, <laughs> I, I couldn't remember. <laughs> um, but it's like, what is happening to this family? So 
But then it's not just at night. It's during the day. Like one day in the middle of the morning, she sees a woman who's dark hair, dark haired and dressed in black. And she goes to like meet her in the dining room because she thinks it's a real person. And oh, no. the woman just disappears. Oh, no. <laughs> in the comments, Dion said a, a child just screamed outside and it scared the shit out of her. So <laughs> you're, you're creeping out the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Incredible. hopefully you like won't hear my toddler like wailing in the background but that'll just help add like some spooky oh, ambiance no. oh, <laughs> oh okay eventually mr h his brother either comes to visit or he at least tells his brother what's been going on and everything they've been experiencing and turns out that his brother has actually heard of this happening before and says hey you should get your furnace checked out <laughs> because it might be oh. poisoning you. And oh. yes, oh, I thought it was like you know because sometimes there's dead bodies in there. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I'm, I'm Lo so and behold, <laughs> a doctor comes over. A guy comes and checks their furnace, and they find out that like their poor, you know, rundown old house also has a very old furnace with a faulty heater that oh. was leaking carbon monoxide into their home. And causing all of their symptoms. And the second that they had it repaired, they were fine. Oh, my (laughs) God. (laughs) Oh, I would be so pissed. Which I think is the craziest thing that you can experience that much. But I guess, like, I looked into it with the story. And they said that carbon monoxide poisoning can cause audio and visual and even like physical hallucinations. So like feeling things on your skin that aren't actually there. And this also still happens today. So there was a guy speaking of TikTok, there was a guy (laughs) on TikTok not too long ago who kept posting these TikToks of like, like weird post-it notes that he was finding, like when he would wake up in the morning, like they were things like, you know, they're watching us or like, don't tell the landlord certain things or whatever. They were really creepy. And then it turns out that there was like a carbon monoxide leak in his apartment. And so he was like doing these things, you know, in the night without remembering. Them. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that sounds like me when I was on Ambien. So <laughs> yeah, Ambien is going away. I've also heard that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's another woman who got a paper in a medical journal written about her in 2005 who collapsed in the shower after she thought she saw a ghost. And then turns out it was just her water heater was installed improperly. And yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) it makes you wonder how many ghost stories are just like a medical condition or poisoning. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so that's like pretty much the crux of our podcast is like, hey, there's a lot of creepy stuff that can happen and like full on hallucinations, seeing ghosts, hearing things, thinking people are moving around your furniture, like, and it's just something regular. So, yeah. Man. <laughs> well, I just subscribe to the podcast and I'll be listening to that too. <laughs> Sorry, what? Him Amazing. And, <laughs> you know, Things like those hallucinations are how much of that is just being made up by your brain and how much of that is your brain being opened up to see something that's actually there. Oh, <laughs> spiritual <laughs> flip side. Are, are, are we just hallucinating? Is it just inside our head or is it just that our head's open enough that we can see it now? 
Oh, oh, well, there's another nightmare. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> that makes it worse. <laughs> I prefer <laughs> the skeptic side of me says it's all not real because your brain is really freaky. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but that's a good that's a good devil's advocate advocate point. <laughs> it is. Yeah, brains are freaky. You it can do some weird shit. There is nothing like the brain. <laughs> I've been like on the schizophrenic side of TikTok a lot lately. And oh, no. How they handle like hallucinations and stuff. And it's been oh, really yeah. fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, a lot of them like this. I saw one where this girl was like, yeah, I was sitting in church and the, the pastor was praying. And there was this woman back behind me who's just like hooting and hollering like Pentecostal worship hollering, which my my dad's side of the family is Pentecostal. So like I died laughing at that. And she was like, yeah, but nobody seemed to notice. And I was just like, who's this crazy lady back, back here hollering? She's like, so I tried to take a picture of her to send it to my, my sister, but I realized she wasn't there. I'm just schizophrenic. And Aww. I was the only one hearing this person's hooting and hollering. Yeah. Oh, geez. Like, it's really fascinating to see, but like a lot of the people I follow now with schizophrenia use their phone cameras to confirm whether their hallucination is real or oh, not. Oh, wow. Well, that's a really cool like tool then to be able yes. to have something to kind of confirm. Because when I was in school for psychology, this was before smartphones. So, I mean, that wasn't even something they considered when they were teaching yeah. us about this. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to send you some videos because, I mean, they're, it's just fascinating. That has yeah. to be terrifying. And then it also brings up, like, possession, how much of that is hallucinations. Yep. I mean, now the Catholic Church has to check for mental illness first before they'll mm-hmm. sanction. But, like, used to, mm-hmm. they didn't. So, mm-hmm. yeah, though we learned something about that because we did, <laughs> like, our first episode <laughs> we did on, like, <laughs> possession and, like, stuff like that. Which just jumped right in. <laughs> just jumped right in, which was maybe a mistake. I don't know. That episode's sort of, like, a <laughs> little ugly duckling episode. <laughs> I skipped it because I just don't fuck with demons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. So you, yeah, but you mentioned that like that the church has to confirm that you know that that it's not some like mental illness thing going on. But what we learned is like there's there's a psychologist or psychiatrist who's been you know involved in a bunch of these, but he's very much a believer in possessions, certain possessions being real, which is like you know I get that, but like it also. I think makes it a little bit more complicated because it's like, are you really like an unbiased view of what's going on with this person? If you like think that that's a possibility, like, I don't know. (laughs) That's true. Cause if you're super religious and you believe it's possible, then you might not be looking at it as scientifically as somebody on the other side that doesn't believe that it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Same time. I think for somebody to be unbiased, they shouldn't believe necessarily either way. So you should have yeah. three viewpoints. You should have mm-hmm. the religious one. You should have the scientific one. And you should have somebody who is open to it could be or it couldn't be. That's mm-hmm. true. And then I you think that out. would be the best. I think it was uh, Annalise. What's her name? Oh, she she ended up starving to death yes. during the yeah. exorcisms and stuff. And that really brought up the issues with like how much because i mean they proved in her autopsy that if she could have just been force fed some food and given water she would have survived yeah yeah it's it's really tragic yeah like on the flip side it's creepy because she was speaking aramaic and who knows aramaic you know like (laughs) (laughs) that's a dead language speak i know people that can read it but i couldn't name very many historians that could actually speak it Mm -hmm. so it's really 
that part's creepy and I can understand that. But they said that there were times where she was studying it in Latin and stuff. So Mm. if she was mentally ill, she might have picked up something in her brain she didn't know she had. How much (laughs) that stuck in the brain and got pulled out by in her brain. Yeah, I've heard people that had brain injuries that woke up that could speak fluently a language they supposedly didn't know, too. So weird (laughs) things can happen. (laughs) Your brain is really freaky. Yeah. (laughs) Wouldn't that be something that I get bonked on the head and I could speak perfect French? That would be like you would know something's wrong. (laughs) My French is awful. I would love for that to happen. (laughs) Give me that brain injury. Yeah. yeah, I'm really sad though that my co-host Paige isn't here because she is like, I think she said like four concussions or something. Like <laughs> she's very prone to getting hit in the head by things, but like doesn't play any, has never played any contact sports. Like one of them <laughs> was like while she was in pit orchestra, like for <laughs> a musical. <laughs> so and like I love Paige. She's very smart and funny, but she's not like a savant at anything from these brain injuries. So. Darn. Oh, sometimes I mean, that's I one data point, but you know. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm super clumsy and everything, but I've never hit, really hit my head. So I'm now I really kind of want to try it. <laughs> Just put yourself in dangerous situations, like go walk on some ice. <laughs> oh no! I'm I'm not that kind of doctor, but I'm going to advise against that. <laughs> Historically, a podcast cannot be held liable. Yeah. <laughs> your demons, your problems, your concussion, your problems. <laughs> yeah, when I was oh, probably my teens, I think I was. My dad broke his leg on some ice. That's a whole nother story. But I was trying to clear off some ice to get to the car so we can get him to the emergency room. And I fell and I hit my head on a block of ice. And I don't know how long I was out of it. But when I came to, I couldn't talk like words, nothing. So I crawled in the house and I just kind of laid there for a while until I think somebody walked in. They're like, oh, I think my sister was like, oh, shit, Keena's bleeding out of the head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so I made my way to the couch and then my mom was like, I, we don't have flashlights. So she grabbed a lamp. I was trying to check my pupils because my mom's a nurse, but I was like, mm. what is happening? But I couldn't vocalize what was happening. <laughs> yeah, it was a great time. So I have no idea what that did to me, but I lost the ability to speak for like an hour. I was like, well, this is Oh, fun. no. So I just went that's- mute. I didn't get to be French, but you know, that's something. <laughs> and then we all went to the emergency room together. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Family bonding to the ER. Yeah. Thank you well, guys thank you so, so much. much. I'm so glad you guys got to hang out with us for the hundredth episode. And I'm just oh, so glad you're here. Yes. Yeah. And I'm happy I got to meet y'all because I love you both. Oh, good. <laughs> hi. Hello. 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 You're here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. I'm, I'm excited. Me too. So refresh everybody who you are, what your podcast is about. So I'm Nash. I'm from You Totally Made That Up. And me and my co-host Tiff, we just, we like weird stories. We say from throughout history, but they can be recent past as well. And, you know, if it's got some weird, freaky, supernatural, mystical, some sort of magical element to it, all the better. Yes. That is my jam. 
Yeah, it is. Is that a new logo or I'm just... It is a new logo. Okay, I was about to say, I really, really like it. (laughs) But I I was afraid you're going to be like, it was that last time. (laughs) (laughs) No, you'll find when you're flat on your back for... (laughs) extended period of time you just find things to do and so I thought well new logo why not no I love it sorry I'm going to podcast right now to follow your podcast so I can listen to it because that's right up my alley oh good 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 we're again because I'm just now easing back into things I think our last one I posted that in January but we haven't recorded since Christmas but we're we're getting there we're getting okay life happens you, yeah, you had a good reason. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got to take care of you first. But I oh. thank you. So this is good. This is good practice for me. I thank you so much for inviting me back. I had such a good time last time. Oh, absolutely! You really cracked my shit up, and then you cracked everybody else up too. So I knew I had to ask you to come back. <laughs> Yay! I was telling Ashton we're immediately going to start matching your accent because when I hear a good Southern accent, the hills come out. So it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> Ashley, are you down south as well? I am. So I grew up in Arkansas, but I live in Louisiana now. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're all steeped in it. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Hills are coming out. Yeah. That's it. I am. <laughs> I love it because when I'm around people that sound more like me, it just gets thick. It makes me so happy because mostly like my accent doesn't come out unless I'm like drunk or mad or really mm-hmm. tired. Mm-hmm. I kind of like, <laughs> like tamp it down but then yeah it gets it's really fun when I can be around people who are like true southern you know comfort and all that Mm -hmm. I love it as my husband says the banjos come out (laughs) (laughs) indeed indeed (laughs) he was very disappointed when I first took him back to my hometown so I'm originally from northern Arkansas he was expecting to hear banjos way more than he did and it wasn't until we went to Branson, Missouri, that he actually heard just random banjos in the wild. And he was like, finally. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho. (laughs) So you're bringing us a weird story. Of course. It's me. Of course. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) And congrats on the 100th episode. Thank you. And when you tasked me with 100 themed something, my mind ultimately drifted to the $100 bill. Upon which Ooh. is Mr. Benjamin Franklin. Smart. And, well, I didn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> like I've had one in my wallet for quite a while. No, I haven't seen one in quite some time. But he, he's one of my favorites in history because there is just an abundance of interesting things and shenanigans. We, we actually did a whole episode on his potential, but very likely, involvement in a sex club. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> you It's know, my shameless, favorite fact about him. Yes. Isn't it wonderful? It's, shameless plug. I apologize. But in, you know what? It is oh, our no. most listened to episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you shameless plug away. I, I love a good shameless plug. It just, and it cracks us up because we got a bunch of heathens listening to us. I love it. Yeah. And especially when you yeah. grow up and you see his photo, you know, like his painting, it's not what you expect when you get older and you learn about him. You're like, oh, <laughs> now, he was rowdy. He was. Today, friends, I would like to inform you of that one time that Benjamin Franklin wrote an essay about farts. <laughs> yes. You yes. Know, you know, flatulence, passing gas, breaking wind. And I'm super happy that for those who don't know me from before, that this is the first impression <laughs> that they're getting. Delightful. 
It is the year 1781, and while Benjamin Franklin was serving as an ambassador to France, he caught wind of (laughs) a contest that was being run by the Royal Academy at Brussels, offering prizes for the best answers to a proposed question. And he took issue because the question was more philosophical versus driving towards something concrete. Because you see, Benny Boy was at the time frustrated with what he perceived to be a lack of scientific inquiry into actual physical things that would be of use to society. And I'll just, I'll hit you with a quick run through of some of what he'd been up to. We all know the whole messing about with electricity experiments, and he actually invented the lightning rod. There was a stove, which had this new sort of venting mechanism design an instrument called a glass harmonica, which to my ear can bend a little bit fingernails on chalkboard, you know, to each their own, to each their own. There's bifocals, swimming flippers, the flexible urinary catheter, the odometer. There's lots. We could go on and on. The dude kept busy. Point is, he liked practical things that were of a tangible benefit. Okay, so Benny pulls out the quill and gets to work. He says... It is universally well known that in digesting our common food, there is created or produced in the bowels of human creatures a great quantity of wind. Accurate. Accurate. (laughs) But his proposal doesn't have to do with eliminating said wind. No, no, no. Let's be reasonable. Rather, his suggestion is that those engaged in science spend their time trying to resolve the gas-related issue which plagues us all, man and woman, young and old, the smell. Of the farts. <laughs> I'm on board. I'm, I'm with him. Specifically, he discusses the dangers of holding in farts in public <laughs> to, to avoid being embarrassed by the odor. Because even if you edge out a squeaker, you know, a silent but deadly, the smell, <laughs> the smell issue remains. Yeah. And he goes on to say, quite dramatically, that the holding in of farts is, quote, contrary to nature. It not only gives frequently great present pain, but occasions future diseases, such as habitual colics and ruptures, often destructive of the Constitution and sometimes of life itself. (laughs) I mean, holy Moses, this is serious business. That's dramatic. And and by the way, while I'm here, because I'm a clinician and I always feel like I should, you can't die from holding in farts. Primarily because it's not possible to hold in gas in the long term. Just in case. I don't know. I've definitely felt like I was going to die a few times. (laughs) You'll feel it. You'll feel it, to be sure. He goes on to talk about how different foods cause distinctly different smells to come out of us. And so wouldn't it make sense that there's something that could be added to the problematic foods to counteract the smell, which he describes as something that would, quote, Render the natural discharges of wind from our bodies not only inoffensive, but as agreeable as perfumes. Oh, <laughs> because farts should smell of Chanel number no. five. That, yes. no, yes, absolutely. That's I'm the, on board. That's the dream. <laughs> he says, Whomever accomplished this would go down as the greatest scientist who ever lived. And then he just has to pun, has to make a pun. He says that when compared to all the other discoveries that have ever been made, smacking down the stink would make said discoveries, quote, scarcely worth a fart thing, spelled capital letters, F-A-R-T dash H-I-N-G, <laughs> which in case anybody in the audience doesn't recall or didn't know, a farthing 
was the lowest amount of currency in Britain back in the day, something like a fourth of a penny. And I didn't look up the etymology of the word fart, but that we know that one of the founding fathers of the United States was just casually tossing it about in the 1700s. It just <laughs> delights me to no end. <laughs> me too. Oh, Benjamin. Oh, Benny. Now you may ask, what in the world did this academy say? Well, they said nothing because he didn't send it to him. He sent it to a friend. Then later, he was so proud, and I love it, he has copies done up on his printing press to hand out to even more friends. <laughs> and, and one of my sources says that after Franklin's death, it was excluded from the publications featuring his writings. And I mean, come on, this is art. Just have yes. some taste. You can't deprive people of this. <laughs> yeah. Now, should you want to read the entire essay, all yes. you got to do is Google Fart Proudly, because that's the title. I kid you not. <laughs> it's so good. And this is cute. Just this year, the Young Academy, which is a successor to the Royal Academy of Belgium, they issued a reply to mark the 240th anniversary of the essay. And in oh. part, here's what they said. Highly esteemed Benjamin Franklin, thank you for your amusing letter and apologies for our belated reply. We regret that your letter only reached us now, but we nevertheless wish to answer it. Your suggested topic on improving flatulence odor is amusing, but indeed also very relevant. An outstanding answer to the contest as you formulate it would be groundbreaking. Your letter is a ripple through time. It may not surprise you that scientific questions can have effects across decades and even centuries. This idea remains the tacit hope of many scientists working together for the progress of humanity. We have not yet invented a reverse time machine, but we send our answer along with your question forward in time, hoping that it may inspire future scientists as your question inspired us, which is, <laughs> it was about farts. I mean, come on. It's 128 pages. I was just about <laughs> to really? say that. You can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> I is don't it really? for it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I should send that to you. I sent you sources, but I should send you the link. Yes. Because I mean, it's free. It's fair yeah. use, you know, now. But so, uh, just adorable. And, and you know, bottom line, huh, bottom, see what I did there. <laughs> I'm hilarious. I'm super Love funny. But, um, but basically, this whole thing is the most elaborate fart joke ever. It's beautiful. It's incredible. He had to have been a very humorous dude to just be around. Oh. Absolutely. I mean, like that's how he got chicks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was a ladies' man. He'd be perfect for a bathroom reading. Yes. I'm sorry, but the moment I fell in love with Ben Franklin, besides like right now, is when he like went to France for a while, got a mistress, and his wife wrote him and was like, You need to come back home. And he was like, Only if I can bring my mistress. And she was like, No, that sucks. And he was like, All right, I'm not coming then. And he just stayed. <laughs> like he just didn't come home <laughs> well, she signed off the letter I remember the smart episode and she signed it your affectionate wife it's like AFF dash capital F-E-C-K Shanette. Yep. it's like fuck you yep. <laughs> sorry can I say the F word on the podcast yes, well, yes, let's please. call it as fuck sorry yeah. it's been anyway <laughs> we encourage it I used to tell the teens I worked with that it was historical and factual instead of as fuck. Oh, nice. Good save. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Benny Franklin. What a treasure. He's amazing. I need, I'm going to read this. I'm yes. so excited. 
I tell you, a good fart joke will get me. Ashley did a Native American trickster that was just a massive fart joke, and damn, I was crying. In the booing, <laughs> where he just he shit so high it went above the trees. Oh, yeah. Nice. Okay, I'm gonna have to find that episode talking about. Oh my god, it's like I learned that trickster tale in the same class that I learned about Ben Franklin and had to read his diaries. Oh, it was an American lit class. That sounds like a great class. Oh my god, it was so good. And like, I'm not gonna lie, I was a senior at that point, and sometimes we took margaritas to class. So (laughs) (laughs) that was a really fun class. Oh, I I think I missed out. I. I went to the same school as you. My lit class was not that lit. We had the most fun. Oh, man. Well, thank you for blessing us with that story. You're most welcome. I'm so excited to know that now. I'm going to tell everyone. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm definitely bringing that up to anyone who mentions Benjamin Franklin when I'm, like, helping them with work at research (laughs) and work now. And which episode is your Ben Franklin episode? It's called... Let me think. Let me think. I don't know the number, but I know the title. There's two parts because we were talking about cults involved in TIFFs. My co-host was Peaches. And in the story that I did, the Ben, that's the episode that I did of the two-parter. The phrase gray cats came up and I'm not going to spoil it. So it's called Big Peaches and Gray Cats. Okay. So everybody go check that out. Sounds like a President's United States of America album. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There's really nothing better than a good presidential sex cult story. Or not president. He wasn't president. But founding father sex cult story. (laughs) Like, yeah, I'm like you, though. I had heard the the rumor, you know, ladies, man, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Then I had heard about, oh, he may have been a sex cult, you know, when he was across the pond. Then when I looked into it, it it's really interesting. There's plenty of, I say evidence, but just things that he wrote in his letters that make you go, okay, there's no way he could have known about this. He was there mm-hmm. at a certain time. Unless he was involved, there's just certain things that wouldn't add up otherwise. And so, yeah, yeah he was totally in the sex cult. <laughs> Oh, yes. absolutely. And it oh, kind of yeah. makes sense. I had so much pull on so many different people, too, because they all were all involved. Oh, good point. Blackmail. Yeah, he mm-hmm. wasn't just charming. He probably had dirt. Yeah. I'm sure he did. I mean, he's probably sexing up all their wives, too. So he probably had dirt that way. <laughs> Real talk. And I love that he was just like, I'm bored. I'm going to invent <laughs> something. Like. <laughs> Like, I'm like, I'm bored. I'm going to take a nap. Yeah, disassociate for a while. Yeah, like <laughs> stare at my phone and surf TikTok and pretend I'm a youth. Yeah, and he was like, you know what the world needs? Swimming flippers. <laughs> See that lightning in the sky? I want to hold it. Yep. <laughs> so do you think that he really was, I mean, he was a genius, but do you think just like anybody at that time could have invented cool stuff because nothing existed yet? So did he mm. only advance so much just because there was so much yet to be discovered compared to now where everything's been, you know, called dibs on? I have this theory that they had so much more time to just sit around and rabble rouse and like, mm. just be like, wouldn't this be a cool idea? What if we could do this? What about that? That is just the juices were flowing more. Like we have so many distractions now. That That's it's true. And, and he made stuff better, like yeah. flexible urinary catheter. They already had catheters. He was like, this blows. How can I, you know, it, it was 
observed far and wide that lightning would strike steeples. So he was like, okay, but can we conduct this? Can we prevent it from destroying these buildings that have elevated whatever and with yeah. bifocals? Okay. He was like, nah, there's got to be a way we can do reading glasses and regular I'm glasses. Tired of, in wearing, one. tired of wearing four pairs of glasses. Let's put them in one. Mm hmm. He's another one that was infuriating people that can use both sides of their brains because he was like a brilliant writer, but he was also very logic minded, scientifically able to focus. Kind of like we talked about earlier, you know, Jane Fawcett, like, I'm so jealous of people that can use both sides of the brain. Yes. Yeah. Like, I've been thinking about that ever since I talked about that. You know, she like was a ballet dancer and then she learned German and cracked coats in World War II. And then she was an opera singer and then she was a preservationist. And like, yeah, it's just like, I don't have that capacity. <laughs> and I don't have that energy. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. I I am probably a bit bitter about it. That my yeah, one side is super, super good at doing, you know, art and writing and liberal arts and critical thinking but that math science side is like <laughs> see you later <laughs> we're also not crafting very elaborate fart jokes that's so. true that's, point. that's another point against us <sighs> that market that niche market has been like cornered <laughs> i was even going to try to turn that into a fart joke and i just I, <laughs> I can't do it i can't do it nothing came out but not bunch Here's a question. Do you think the people who make those fart pads that you can stick in your underwear that like cuff oh. the butt, did they read this fart report? That's an interesting theory. Hmm. I kind of want to try those out just because I want to know. Yeah. Wait, it sends a report to somewhere? Is that what you're saying? No, like did they read like Benjamin Franklin's fart thing? Oh, I thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought you said it'd be hilarious if it was like Bluetooth and like reported. Your that's phone, exactly your what phone. I thought. Because you know you have this thing that'll measure your EKG and all that stuff nowadays. Yes. And if you just if you ever have a heart issue and you go to the cardiologist, sometimes they'll the send words. you home with mm -hmm. a unit that sends information back to them and records yeah. it. You know, and I thought, is there a fart pad that I've not heard of that? And what would it record? Like reverb or? Yes, it measures your like methane <laughs> levels. Your cortisol, yeah. Would it rate it like an earthquake? Like, yes, a seismic. TM, 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 TM. Yes, <laughs> we're inventing right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is where the magic happens. Exactly. This is. See, we're sitting around. We're yeah. not distracted. We're rabble rousing. This is how inventions are made. Mm -hmm. Huzzah! Huzzah! <laughs> Luciano. Hello. Hello. I grew this beard half a year, uh, a year ago just for this day. Just for this day. A year to get here. And here I am. <laughs> Me too. I'm, well, I will leave y'all to it. Anything, okay, thank you. It thank nice you so much, Nash, for joining Feel us. Better. Thank, yes. you, thank you. I had fun. <laughs> now, Boom. I can't wait to hear your new episodes. And if you ever need a guest, I will uh, volunteer as tribute. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Talk to y'all later. Have fun. <laughs> Bye. Uh, bye. Luciano, hi. Hello. Hello, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. That, that was my missed out fire. Hello. 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 Yeah, it's been a hot minute. <laughs> How's this year been? Well, you know, uneventful. Uneventful. <laughs> yeah. So, my story. 
Woohoo! I did the random segment and I was given the word Centurion by Brilliant AF Patreon member Allison, who is our first patron from oh. Australia. Hey. Ooh. Ozzy, Ozzy, I, Ozzy. Oi, oi, oi. I know. Yeah. My, her, she sent an email and was just like, from sunny Australia. And I was like, I want to go there so bad. That I like that meme that's like, you could tell me things about animals in Australia and I wouldn't even question it. And one of them's like, a dog doesn't need a permit to carry a gun. Like, I wouldn't even do it. <laughs> Texans are cocky. They're like, Texas tough. No, no, Aussie tough. Like that. Yeah. yeah. When You know you're tough, but you don't have to brag about it. Texans yeah. are always like, Texas tough. Texas this. Oh, yeah. Australians are like, oh, that's cute, mate. No, no. <laughs> You know, yeah. That is the best explanation. What's that word? Because I'm stupid and I didn't know. I was thinking Centurion? of a horseman. We're gonna talk about soldiers in Rome. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, got it. Centurion. I think I'm saying that right, right? <laughs> I think that's an, an, I say centurion, but that's centurion? I'm also centurion. a southern asshole. So who knows? Words are hard. According to tradition, on April 21st, 753 BCE, Romulus and his twin Remus founded Rome on the site where a she-wolf walked up and was like, suckle me if you want to live when they were babies. Like you do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's how I approach dates, too. It's fine. (laughs) It's a great origin story. In actuality, the myth originated sometime in the 4th century BCE, and the exact date of Rome's founding was set by a Roman scholar, Marcus Tarantius Varro. There's going to be a lot of names I'm going to butcher, so uh, apologies in advance. And that was about 1st century BCE. That would be your concussion thing. Like, you wouldn't wake up speaking fluent French. You would wake up being able to pronounce all of the names on historical AF. Oh, yeah. Oh. If that ever happened, that I could pronounce things, people would just know that I'm like a pod person or something. Yeah. <laughs> Not for life. Where is her body? Tina has checked out. <laughs> so Augustus Caesar proclaimed himself the first emperor of Rome in 31 bc these this is a long time ago and the transition from republic to empire was due largely in part of everybody getting really stabby with the assassination of julius caesar on 44 bce so yeah we just had the ides march two days ago Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. lots of good memes you know poor caesar but good memes the roman empire was officially established in 27 bce and then in ce 286 the roman empire was split into eastern and western empires and each had its own emperor this is gonna be a very basic history of rome we're not gonna dive in we do not have time for that. <laughs> that's, that's a safe bet. Yeah, Rome is very complicated. So you have the Western Empire that suffered several Gothic invasions. And then in 455, it was sacked by vandals. But Rome continued to decline after that. And it was about 476 when the Western Roman Empire came to an end. But the Eastern Roman Empire, more commonly known as the Byzantine Empire, survived until the 15th century. It fell when the Turks took control of its capital city, Constantinople, which is Istanbul in Turkey today. And that was 1453. So east side, it way better. West side, not so much. East coast, west coast, always a battle. But during this long history, Rome grew from a small town of pig farmers, which is what it originally was, to a vast empire that stretched from England to Egypt and completely surrounded the Mediterranean. And I have a photo because this is a shit ton of land. Yeah. Cool. The Roman Empire conquered these lands by attacking them with their unmatched military strength, and it held on to them by letting them mostly govern themselves. 
So that was also one of the things that made them so successful is that they appointed kind of like governors to each areas. People were less likely to rebel. The Roman army was one of the most successful in the history of the world, and its soldiers were rightly feared for their training, discipline, and stamina. And a lot of historians actually argue that modern Western civilization has basically been built on this right here, like the Roman Empire and the military. And there's a lot of parallels between their military and our military today. That makes sense. As a result, the army was a major player in Roman politics and maintaining its loyalty was an essential task for any emperor. Take our man Caligula, a.k.a. Little Boots. Oh, Little Boots. He led his army on a failing campaign against the Britons, and his men were about to revolt on his ass because he cut their pay. So to make it up to them, he led them to the English Channel, where he told them they could fill their helmets with the spoils of the ocean, a.k.a. seashells, as a reward for their hard work and told them to go away rich. So he didn't do so well. He didn't maintain his loyalty with the army, and it pissed off a lot of people. Even all his orgy party barges weren't enough to save him, and they murdered him. Womp womp. That was deserved. He sucked. Anyway, back to the army. The Roman army was the backbone of the Roman Empire and one of the most successful armies in world history. It was well-trained, well-equipped, and well-organized. In order to guard such a large empire, the army took advantage of well-built Roman roads to move very quickly. And a lot of those roads are still there today, which is insane to think about something this incredibly old being all over Europe. Like I've walked on one in France and it just blew my mind. That's crazy. Ingredients for making that kind of concrete has been lost to time, but it all really? up. Yeah. Nobody can quite figure out what it was, but all that stuff's still standing. So it had to have been pretty incredible. Seashells, maybe? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Little bit onto something. <laughs> And only men could be in the Roman army, no women allowed. There were two main groups of Roman soldiers. You had the legionnaires and the auxiliaries. So soldiers in the Roman legionary were all Roman citizens. They signed up to fight for 20 years, which is what you do in our military in the U.S. If you do a full career, it's 20 years. And then at the end of 20 years, they're generally awarded land and or a large sum of money. This way, the army was made up of trained and experienced soldiers. It also put land in the hands of loyal soldiers. And often they kind of congregated together in military towns and they called them colonia. The legionary had to be over 17 years old and they had to be a citizen. Every new recruit had to be a fighting fit. So anybody who was deemed too weak or too short was rejected. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that's kind of how like MEPS is for the military today, too. You have to go through and everybody looks at you and they weigh you and they measure you and they make you duck walk, and then they judge you. (laughs) So there were also non-citizen soldiers called auxiliaries. They joined for 25 years, and they were awarded citizenship at the end of that, Hmm. i.e. this was kind of a tool for cultural assimilation. So being away from their family kind of loosened their clan loyalties, and then they replaced them with ones with Rome. So it was kind Hmm. of a thing like, you do this for us, then you're going to be one of us officially. But they were also only paid a third of the wages. And they often had the jobs that were most dangerous. So they were guarding the forts and then they put them on the front lines when they were fighting too. So you're getting Mm -hmm. paid way less. You have to go way longer and you're probably going to die anyway. So it really sucked. History is a son of a bitch. A Roman soldier was a well-trained fighting machine. He could march for 20 miles a day wearing all his armor and equipment. He could swim or cross rivers and boats, build bridges, and smash his way into forts. 
That's a resume I do not have of any of that. <laughs> yeah, don't sign me up for any of that. No for me, dog. After a long day's march, Roman soldiers had to build a camp. They had to complete a ditch with a wall with wooden stakes for protection. And then the next day, pack up and do it all over again. The amount of exhaustion, I can't even fathom. No thanks. And the soldier almost always followed orders. Anyone who didn't face tough punishments. If you fell asleep on duty, you could be sentenced to death. Oh, that's a little extreme, but okay. Right? Especially how tired you had to be for doing yeah. all that. I guess, I guess I understand why, but, like, that's a little excessive. I mean, at some point, your body just shuts down near that exhaustion. Yeah. It's not even your fault. And soldiers weren't always at war, so in their spare time, if you want to call it that, they were training for battle. They practiced fighting information, man-to-man. They also patrolled their conquered territories, built roads, forts, aqueducts, you know, just all that simple stuff you do on your days off. At its largest, there might have been around half a million soldiers in the Roman army. That's that's a lot of people. To keep such a large number of men in order, it was divided up into groups called legions. There's been lots of movies called that, so this is why. And each legion had between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers. When the Roman Republic started, it had two consuls at the time, so each consul commanded over two legions, and they were numbered in Roman numerals, one through four. And the number of men, organization, and selection kind of changed over time. By the time the first Roman Emperor Augustus came around, there were already 28 legions, most of which were commanded by a senatorial legate. During the imperial period, there was a core of 30 legions, according to military historian Adrian Goldsworthy. So there was a lot. A legion was further divided into a group of 80 men called centuries. And these would be made up of 10 squads that had different jobs to perform. At this point, you have 10 people and some people are going to build tents. Some people are going to, you know, make food. They all have jobs. And then you have 80 and that's your first century. A man in charge of a century is our word, the centurion. He carried a short rod to show his importance and he would also beat anybody who disobeyed him. Snitch. (laughs) Each legion had 59 or 60 of these centurions. They were the backbone of the professional army and were the career soldiers who ran the day-to-day life of the soldiers, as well as issuing commands in the field. They were generally moved up from ranks, but in some cases, they could be direct appointments from the emperor or other high-ranking officials. And then he had six centuries, created a cohort. The first cohort was different and had about 800 men and only five centuries. Many of the extra men in the first cohort were specialists, so these would be the blacksmiths, the builders. The centurion of the first cohort's first century was the primus pilus, or the first spear, and it was the highest ranking of all the centurions in the legion. And then 10 cohorts equals the legion. So that's your big ass up to like 6,000 people. Everybody with me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah no. I, have- I have a question that's more of a dad joke. Okay. Oh, always. Back then, were Roman numerals just called numerals? That's very true. <laughs> I'm going yeah, to say, I would, yeah. I would say yeah, yeah too. So the basic designation of 10 cohorts was the same throughout all the legions. They were arranged in battle so that the strongest and weakest units were actually mixed so that it maximized morale and effectiveness. Mm. They always threw like the best of the best and the worst of the worst into each cohort. Yep. Instead of making a weak link, they all make them average length. Morale was really important too because your entire empire is, you know, hanging on them doing their job and you need to keep them happy to do their job. This just makes me want to watch Gladiator. I've never actually watched it. Right? 
On the march, the legionary would carry between three and 14 days worth of rations. They would also have a saw, a wicker basket, a piece of rope or leather, a shovel, a water skin, a sickle, and a pickaxe. There's some discrepancy over how much they actually carried at a time and the total weights. At times, it's actually possible that they had wagon trains and mules, but they estimate that in any time they could be carrying anything from 66 to 100 pounds of weight. Jeez. And that's just gear, weapons, and rations. And that's 30 kilograms and 45 kilograms for (laughs) non-Americans. That is the only thing stopping me from wanting to go like on a long hike is I don't want to carry all that stuff. That's so much weight. That is a lot of weight. When you said wagon, I thought of the the character Cookie from Disney's Atlantis. Oh, yeah. He's like, we're having beans. What about vegetables? I said beans. (laughs) (laughs) I need to watch that now. Yes. It's been a long time. One of my faves. But yeah, we talked about earlier that they were walking 20 miles a day with 100 pounds on you. You'd have people would be collapsing. I wonder they were all fit. I would not survive. I'm like, my 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 phone is uncomfortable in my pocket. Let me switch it over. <laughs> and you're talking about 100 pounds? I would. I'd be like, listen, man, just put me to the front. Get, fodder me up because I, I, yeah. I can't. No, thanks. So each legionnaire carried a short sword called a gladius. It was a double-edged weapon that was about 18 inches long and two inches wide. It often had a corrugated bone grip formed to their hand. So it was not very personal. Yeah. So you can wield your thing. It also had a large round ball at the end that helped with balance. The primary use was for thrusting at short range. It was carried high on the right-hand side, so it would be clear of the legs and the shield arm. So the more you know. They also cool. had a pillum, which was a javelin. It was seven feet long and very light. It was thrown just before engaging the enemies. If you've watched any of these movies, they're always in those flanks and they have the shields and they're moving slowly. But yeah, the first thing they do is throw the javelin. And they would try to like disarm and wound as many as they can before they would actually like leave the flanks. They also had like this one flank called the turtle, where like somebody's shooting back, they all put the Together and then people put shields above and they just made oh, little turtle. Oh, I seen that. I seen that. Turtle, turtle. In movies. Yeah. <laughs> in movies. Yeah. yeah, I've seen that in movies. Oh yes, in my time on the battlefield. Yes. When you said the sword, you're like, and it was used for and then I was thinking, dicing, slicing. <laughs> Julian. <laughs> Stabby stabs. The only reason I knew what the sword was um, used for is because I watched that show Forged in Fire where they make oh. the knives and stuff. That makes sense. Which they is also, also had a cool. dagger called a pukio. It was anywhere from 7 to 11 inches long, and it was a similar width to the gladius, and it was highly decorative. But it was a very useful secondary weapon in case you were disarmed, and it was attached on the left side. So you had mm. a, like a stabby thing on both sides. Stabby McStabby. There he goes again. (laughs) Soldiers were rigorously trained to march long distances, fight in precise formations, and kill expertly with all the weapons they carried. They usually lined up for battle in tight formations. And then after a terrifying burst of arrows and artillery, the Roman soldiers marched at a slow, steady pace towards the enemy. At the last minute, they hurled their javelins, drew their swords before charging the enemy. And then they had a cavalry that was separate from this, and they would chase anybody who tried to run away. 
So it was a well-oiled machine. Yeah, something like. And then I figured I would end with a couple of famous centurions, centurions, whatever that is. One was the legendary Lucius Sisius Dentatus, who was known as the Roman Achilles. He participated in 120 battles and at least eight single combat duels. Mm. That's a lot. That's, that's a, a lot. lot. <laughs> Statistically, that's a lot to even survive. Yeah. Oh, man, it's just it's not taking anything away from Orange Julius there, that guy. But <laughs> does he just lay, like, was he in it, but like just calling the plays like a coach? And then that all of a sudden he gets a W. Meanwhile, the players are the ones, you know? Like, I got to know a little bit more. I mean, that's very impressive. Like Vince Lombardi, a lot of a lot of wins, but he didn't, didn't go on the field. I just need to know a little bit more based on how you describe yeah. it. Yes. Nothing, 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 nothing taken away. Just need to know a little bit more. His other claim to fame is that he had no fewer than 45 battle scars. So it, it appears he probably got stabbed a few times, but was just like, nah, check this one out. Yeah. That dude definitely approached people in bars like, you want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> <laughs> or they'd be like, punch me in the stomach. Yes. Yeah, that kind of person. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. Absolutely. Then we have Spurious Linguistinus. He enjoyed a 22-year career in the 2nd century BCE, during which he won 34 separate awards for courage and the ability on battlefield. So, Side note, he could make out like nobody's business. <laughs> with, that, with that name. Right? But he went over, so he's like, oh, I'm out now. I'm going to keep going. Good for him. And then finally, Centurion mentioned most often in Julius Caesar's accounts was P. Sex- Sextius? Sextius Baculus. Call what me. These names. And he was also known as the staff. And he wants to save Caesar's life on the battlefield. That's some big dick energy. It is, right? That's there was funny. a ton of them. They were battle-scarred veterans who over the centuries made rank of Centurion and were respected and feared by both Roman and enemy troops alike. This went really fast. It did. did. Yeah, yeah. We've been doing short dives, so this is probably the shortest research I have ever done. I don't know if I've been your best guest, but I'm definitely the first. So that counts for something. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I set the bar really low, so it's only uphill after that, baby. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Oh, no. It's always a joy to have you on. I haven't been on the stage since Rona started, so I haven't really been thinking of material. But one thing I, I am going to talk about is like the best part about my wife working in the educational field is that she got her vaccine first. Mm-hmm. So then I'd be like, can you go give me this? I can't go to the <laughs> store because, you know, I could die. <laughs> but you all vaccinated. Can you pick me up a six pack of some chips? Thanks, babe. <laughs> Love you. Heart, heart. Hello. Hi. So I will I bid you adieu. You guys can start in the next one. Y'all have fun as I see everyone. Bye. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to meet y'all and I love y'all. I follow you on Twitter and I love all of your posts. Oh, thank you. It's nice to meet you too. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me. This is so exciting. Of course. Congratulations. A hundred episodes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm so happy. And we're really close to 100,000 downloads. So I'm really hoping oh that God. happens with this episode. So wow. Close. Oh, my God. That is so <sighs> exciting. Do you feel your age? Do you feel the 100 really. episode? <laughs> no? <laughs> Not really. I think, well, I think the COVID era has really made everything 
just seems slow-mo and just doesn't seem very real yet. It's very exciting. A lot yeah. of a lot of change, a lot of evolution. When we started this, Ashley and I, it was just, you know, a dick joke that turned into yeah. <laughs> essentially the thing that has kept me sane through all this. Yeah, like That's I told good. Tina today that uh, something I hadn't thought about till this morning was that when we started this podcast, my head was shaved and now I have hair. Yeah. Oh my God, there you go. Yeah, yeah, so I was like, oh, okay. So that's an evolution. That's, that's weird. That's how long the podcast has been around. <laughs> okay, do you want us to take it away? Sure. All right. Well, again, thank you, Kina, for having us on the show. And nice to meet you, Ashley. Super cool to have you here. Yes. And again, congratulations on 100 episodes, because that's very, very thank exciting. You. In honor of that, to ring in your 100th episode and sticking with the 100 theme, we decided we were going to talk about the 1996 Centennial Olympic Park bombing. You get it? 100 yes. Centennial. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It fits. It works. It fits. It, it, it works. <laughs> it, it works. It works, guys. Okay. The 1996 Olympics were called the Centennial Olympics because they were the 100-year anniversary of the first modern Olympic Games in Athens in 1896. And I realize I don't need to say that because all of you are nodding like, uh-huh, we get it. Move along. <laughs> everyone, hears, everyone hears a nerd and they're like, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, then let's get to the actual 1996 Olympic Park bombing. So it was an absolutely tragic incident in which a pipe bomb was placed at Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta, Georgia, during the Summer Olympics that would take the life of one person and injure another 111. This bomb was placed, yes, it was placed by Eric Rudolph, an American terrorist who would go on to plant three more bombs over the course of the next two years. Perhaps one of the worst things to come from the Centennial Olympic Park bombing, though, is that the blame would be placed on the wrong man. If anyone's been Netflix and quarantining like I have over the last year, there's been a lot of content. Yeah, she's Ashley's naughty. There's been a lot of content around this particular topic in the last year on Netflix because... One of the worst things to come from the bombing was that the blame was actually placed on Richard Jewell. And there's a bunch of shows on Netflix about him. He was a security guard on detail that night at the park. He would be the first to spot the bomb and would shortly thereafter be investigated by the FBI and publicly blamed for the bombing, socially ridiculed and isolated for several months before the FBI reshifted their focus to Eric Rudolph. So let's put ourselves... At the time and place, it was July 27th, 1996. The Summer Olympics have been going on for about a week at this point. And I just have to address this because I find this such an interesting fact. But these are the same Olympics where 14-year-old gymnast Carrie Strug tore her ligaments while she was doing that vault routine. You guys have seen Mm. that footage, right? Go watch it. It's so intense. Yes, it is. This is just to kind of put everything into context. This is the same Olympics where that happened. Yeah. So prior to the Olympics, some vacant plots had been converted into a park named the Centennial Olympic Park, hence our name of this little segment here. And that park would serve as the central hangout location for more than 2 million people that came to Atlanta to watch that year's Olympic Games. On this particular night, July 27th, thousands of people gathered at the park to listen to Jack Mack and the Heart Attack band play. (laughs) <laughs> you know, jamming. I, I, jamming. A thirty, a thirty-three-year-old man named Richard Jewell, uh, mentioned by 
Rachel was there at the park the night too, serving as a temporary security guard for the event. From what Jewel says, he was walking around near the concert when he spotted a bag underneath a bench. He alerted another officer who reached out to some people that had been sitting at the park bench for probably 30 or so minutes. When those people said it wasn't their bag, this incident was immediately escalated to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation that called in members of their bomb squad to inspect the bag. As they were inspecting the bag, Jewel and other officers ushered the crowd that had gathered to hear the concert away from the bag location. Jewel personally ran to the four-story sound tower and forced the crew that was running the lights and sound for the music show to evacuate. Only a few minutes into this evacuation, a bomb that was inside the mysterious bag would explode. Yeah, it's horrible. This bomb used a steel plate as a means of directing the explosion in a certain direction, but it's actually believed that at some point the bag was unintentionally shifted just slightly because it wasn't as deadly as they think it was intended to be. This bomb also contained nails that shot out at those nearby, any individuals that were still nearby. And in fact, the one death that did occur as a result of the bomb was that of 44-year-old Alice Hawthorne, who was killed when one of those nails shot out from the bomb and entered her skull. Oh, oh my gosh. Bombing scare me, but like getting hit with a nail from a bombing, just extra. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think this is like a good tale of it pays. I don't know if pays is the word I want, but it, it pays to be ultra cautious right this is like one of those scenarios where i spotted a bag it kind of weirded me out but i'm not going to say anything thank god that richard jewel said something right yeah so initially because of what he did he was paraded as a hero the fbi began digging into his past they started finding things that made him look a little sus in their eyes jewel was seen as someone that was law enforcement obsessed they found that he had had several jobs in law enforcement that had all turned out like really badly for example when he was working at the habersham county sheriff's office as a guard he was caught after hours impersonating a police officer doing security work at a nearby apartment complex oh no 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 Later, when he was working as a campus police officer at Piedmont College, he would eventually be forced to resign. He received a lot of critique during his employment at the college for the several arrests that he made while there. The college felt that he made arrests and wrote some really grandiose reports about very minor infractions. In fact, it was the president of the college, Dr. W. Ray Clear, who called the FBI tip line after he saw the media praising Jewel for his involvement in the Olympic bombing and told them, actually, you need to reshift your focus on Jewel as the perpetrator instead. Oh, no. I also don't think it helped that Jewel was living with his mom at the time of the bombing. He was working a temp job, and he was seen as someone that was kind of down and out, but obviously had ambition and desire to be the hero. The theory started circulating that he had placed the bomb and and had intentionally discovered it so that he would be the man remembered as the one that had evacuated people and saved dozens of lives. I know we don't know all of the details, but I want to know how much of the police's investigation of him was just based on rumor or how much was it like actually they actually suspected him? 
I think the majority of it's based on rumor and just like yeah. circumstantial evidence. It's one of those classic, you smelt it, you dealt it cases, right? He's yeah. The first guy that spotted it. So let's look into him. And he happens to have this background that doesn't look too great. He has this mm-hmm. background that obviously clearly shows that he's law enforcement obsessed and wants to be a hero. And look, he was the hero in this yeah. scenario. Yeah. I remember him being kind of socially awkward too. So that he just kind of. Yeah, the interviews of him are very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So people are like, he's socially awkward and he lives with his mom. Let's look into that guy. Okay. <laughs> exactly three days after the bombing, the FBI officially announced that they were focusing on Jewel as a person of interest. It all became very real on July 30th, 1996, when an issue of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was published with a front page headline that read, FBI suspect hero guard may have planted bomb and hero was in quotes a police reporter named kathy scruggs wrote the article after receiving a tip from law enforcement that the fbi was officially looking into jewel this is when all hell broke loose while the media was watching the house fbi agents would come in and search it Eventually, they actually ended up searching it twice over the course of the next several months. They also placed Jewel under 24-hour surveillance. And Jewel, he would assist them in all of this. He intentionally wore brightly colored shirts so that they could easily spot spot him when they were watching him. I know. For for Jewel, he, he really genuinely wanted to help the FBI. Remember, again, that he desperately desperately wanted to work in law enforcement in one of his first interviews before it was revealed that the FBI was actually looking into him as a as a suspect he said on national television that he hoped his involvement in the bombing incident would earn him a job in law enforcement Mm. he had an unhealthy amount of respect and reverence for local police and the FBI at least at this point he did yeah That is so sad. I know. And I think, and maybe I'm just projecting this on you guys and really it just relates to me, but let me know if this would be you as well. (laughs) If I was wearing like a brightly colored shirt to like, hey, I'm over here, it would be sarcastic AF, right? Yeah. Like it would literally say like, hey, bitches, I'm here (laughs) or something like that. Yeah, like yes. I would be like, look at me getting my ice cream. I see you. <laughs> exactly. Like I'm not saying I wouldn't also wear a brightly colored shirt so they could always spot me, but it would be under completely different motivations than Richard. Jules. Exactly. Like oh. it would say, I'm watching you too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Or like at least buy me a drink first. Like <laughs> yeah, there you go. Buy me a drink. Yes. It was later revealed that an anonymous 911 call had been placed just nine minutes before the bomb had detonated at Centennial. The 13-second long call was clearly made by a man, and in a very slow and calm manner, he stated, there is a bomb at Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. I want you to actually say it calmly in a man's voice. <laughs> calmly and slowly. <laughs> There's a bomb. I, that's the low. That's literally my base. That was my base. <laughs> I, I, I don't have that register. Sorry. <laughs> so after Jules' attorneys were able to determine that there was no way that he could have made this call and been back to where he was in the park by the time of the bombing, in addition to the fact that he had passed a polygraph test at this point, the FBI began to ease up. On October 26, 1996, Jewel received a letter from the Atlanta U.S. attorney that essentially said, as simply as it can be put, that based on the evidence developed to date, he was no longer considered a suspect. But they did not issue an apology. 
<laughs> sorry, bro. And it, I, mean, I ruined really your is. life. My bad. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. And and it really did ruin his life. It, this lasted for, I believe it was like 88 days that he was just under total public scrutiny and completely isolated, couldn't leave his house and just was chilling with his mom for three months straight. Right. <laughs> In a 60 minutes interview that Jewel did, he was asked if he ever thought after everything that had happened, if he would ever get a job as a cop now. And Jewel's response is astounding. He admits that he does not believe a career in law enforcement will ever be a thing for him and that that's something he struggles to reconcile with every single day. It's so sad. My heart. Little Richard. I'm just like really sad for him. And you guys, I think I'm completely different from all of you because I think like my bitterness is just so strong (laughs) that I don't, I'm serious. I don't understand. Like, it's just amazing to me that he would still want anything to do with the field that completely screwed him over like that. Yeah. And so my response is like, I totally get the sadness of it, too. But my response is like, why? Why? Why would you want to be a part of that anymore? It's just amazing. His response is just really amazing to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. In that situation, I would probably like don my best fishnets and be like, I'm going to be a vigilante now. Yes. (laughs) Like, apparently yes. the cops aren't going to do their job, so I'll do it for them. And you know what sucks even more is you know that he's never going to be hired again, even as, like, private yeah. security or anything like that, just because yeah, of yeah. the stigma that is probably connected to his name. So he can't even be, like, law enforcement adjacent, probably. Mm-hmm. On January 16th, 1997, in Sandy Springs, which is a suburb in the Atlanta area, A bomb exploded at an abortion clinic. After law enforcement arrived, a second intentionally delayed bomb went off. Upon examining the bombs, it was realized that a steel directional plate and nails had been used, much like the one that was found at the Centennial Olympic Park bombing just a few months earlier. The very next month, on February 21st, 1997, another bomb went off at the Other Side Lounge of Atlanta, an LGBTQ bar. And I just, I have to right now just acknowledge that there was just some horrific shootings in Atlanta uh, today, that this is just, the parallels is kind of Mm -hmm. eh, weird to me right now. Yeah. And then on January 29th, 1998, another very similar bomb exploded at another abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed a police officer and severely injured a nurse. So law enforcement officially made the connection between this series of bombs and the bomb placed at the park during the 1996 Olympics, and they began the hunt to locate the person responsible. Based on the locations that were being bombed, it doesn't take much brain power to understand the motives of the person responsible. They were clearly a very far-right extremist that was incredibly violent. The following day after the Birmingham bombing occurred, news organizations received letters from someone claiming to be part of the Army of God. This person accepted responsibility for the bombing and explained why he did what he did by saying that anyone performing abortions deserved to die. When the Birmingham bombing occurred, two witnesses noticed that while the majority of people ran toward the site to offer help, there was one suspicious looking guy that was doing the exact opposite. He was calmly walking away. 
These witnesses were able to provide law enforcement with a physical description of the man and the license plate number for the vehicle he drove. After doing some digging, federal agents were officially able to connect 31-year-old military-trained Christian extremist Eric Rudolph to the bombings. Can I just say shout out? Because I cannot remember, like... My own license plate number. How did someone remember? (laughs) Especially like in a state of panic. Yeah. Yes. And what I was going to say is exactly the same thing. Like earlier I was saying congratulations to Richard Jewell for maybe being the weirdo in the scenario and saying, hey, Mm -hmm. there's a bag underneath that bench. That's kind of suspicious. And then for these two witnesses to say, this guy looks suspicious. Let's at least take down his license plate number like it pays to be the weirdo it pays to be super observant you know you're not you can only help if you Mm -hmm. choose to be that person right if that bag under the bench isn't a bomb and it turns out to just be a little kid's backpack then no no harm no foul nothing was lost by drawing attention to it yeah exactly i just now like hearing this story back there are clearly two examples here of encouraging you to just like be observant if you see something say something yeah Mm -hmm. Um, in may of 1998 rudolph was added to the fbi's 10 most wanted list and a one million dollar reward was offered to anyone that could provide information that would lead to his capture rudolph would remain a fugitive for the next five years living in the appalachian wilderness in north carolina this area of land is some 61,500 square feet at one point point more than 200 federal agents were searching in these woods for rudolph but they just couldn't find him in total this manhunt would cost more than 20 million (gasps) dollars oh my god yeah while rudolph has always claimed that he survived the woods all on his own for those five years some don't believe this could be true there is a theory that rudolph had help from a local anti-government extremist christian militant group We do know for a fact that many people in these nearby white Christian communities did support Rudolph, not knowing at this point that he was also involved in the Olympic bombing and believing that the death of the officer and the nurse at the most recent abortion clinic bombing had been an accident. Many of these townspeople supported this army of God man that wanted to destroy abortion clinics and LGBTQ bars. We know that there were people in this town that had bumper stickers that said, run eric run but just which i know so gross but how much actual physical assistance they offered to rudolph while he was on the run is unknown i don't know it's it's gross either way it's it's so gross yeah on may 31st 2003 a rookie police officer ended up spotting a man in the early hours of the morning looking through a dumpster behind a save-a-lot store in murphy north carolina so when he went to check out what was going on with this dude he instantly recognized rudolph even though he was clean shaven and he had dyed his hair the officer immediately arrested him in exchange for pleading guilty to the four bombings and revealing the location for where he had buried 250 pounds of dynamite across North Car- the North Carolina forest, Rudolph was offered a plea deal that allowed him to avoid the death penalty. Oh. Yeah. And I know that there were some people involved that really didn't want him to take that plea deal. Obviously, they were hoping to condemn this guy to death, but others involved, even as much as they wanted him to die, were like, no, we have to know the exact locations of that yeah. 250 pounds of dynamite. 
Yeah. Which, yeah, that's a lot. So, yeah. So, there is still the question of why Rudolph would bomb the Olympics, right? It doesn't really fall in the same line as his anti abortion, anti gay, super right, super Christian rhetoric. He explained all of this in a ridiculous statement he made in the course of his plea agreement in April of 2005. It essentially said that he bombed the Olympics because of global socialism and that he wanted to embarrass the government when all eyes were on it. Also, let's talk about how all the athletes like have orgies at the Olympics, right? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> let's call more attention to that. Yeah. <laughs> I was in peak physical condition around everyone else with peak physical condition. Why not? Oh, my God. Literally, you're surrounded by the most attractive people on the planet. I would never wear clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Never. Oh, my gosh. Rudolph had hoped the bomb would force the games to be canceled or, at a minimum, for the games to lose money because people were too scared to attend. That was his ultimate goal. Unfortunately for him, even after... This bomb went off and someone died. They just continued on with the Olympics. So, Which is kind of gross, too. Yeah. yeah, that's a little weird. Rudolph, Rudolph is now at the ADX Florence Supermax Federal Prison in Florence, Colorado, where he spends 23 hours per day alone in his cell and Good. will remain there for the rest that's of his fun. life. Oh, I want to know how he ended up in Colorado. There's always weird stuff about transferring from prison yeah. to prison. Plus, this is like a Supermax federal prison. There's only Yeah, many that's shows. true. Mm-hmm. Speaking of this Supermax Federal Prison, this is like side fun note, although I don't know that it's really fun. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, is also an inmate at that same location. Oh, okay. We definitely yeah. want them together. Mm, yeah, right. Good idea. <laughs> so what came of Richard Jewell? For the next several years following the Olympic bombing, he would engage in filing and defending himself in several lawsuits. He filed against the FBI, against CNN, ABC, NBC, the New York Post, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and against Piedmont College for directing the FBI to Jewel in the first place. Good. I mean, yeah. Power power to you, buddy. Like, yes. Jewel was relatively successful in all of these suits, with the exception of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They refused to settle. And in 2011, the Georgia Court of Appeals ended up ruling in favor of the newspaper. Despite his doubts and grief that he would never work in law enforcement again, Jewel actually did go on to become an officer and then later a deputy sheriff in Georgia. Isn't that so surprising to hear? I'm so proud of him. (laughs) And I think, well, you know what? And I go back and forth with it because, yeah, there's this element of like, that's what he wanted. He did something really heroic and really amazing. And he was defeated for it, right? Like Mm -hmm. he, it ruined his life and made it seem as though he would never have a career in law enforcement, which is what he always wanted. Mm -hmm. However, he obviously was like problematic in the law enforcement field, right? Like some of the citations he was writing up on the college campus were like for people smoking marijuana or something, or the fact that he was working as like a security guard and he would wear his security guard uniform to go police like a nearby apartment complex. That is outside of your purview. You know? Yeah. So I, I go back and forth. I am glad that this incident didn't ruin him. I am glad that he was able to go on and pursue what he really wanted to do. But just knowing his history, it is like 
uh, it might not be the best fit for him. Yeah. yeah. It, it I, to- I totally forgot. Him, it just might not be for everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I totally forgot that he went on to become a deputy sheriff. That's insane yeah, to me. I, I totally yeah. forgot. Yeah. So on August 29th, 2007, he was found dead in his bedroom. He had died oh. of complications of heart disease and diabetes. He was only Jeez. 44 years old when he passed away. Oh, that is so young. Uh, yeah. When you're. Though. No, I was just going to say, when you're nearing 30, like Rachel and I, 44 doesn't seem very far away. No. <laughs> I'm knocking on 40's door. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah, we're yeah, old, guys. <laughs> so yeah. it's been reported, though, that all the way up until Jules death, he would return to Centennial Olympic Park every single year on the anniversary of the bombing to place a rose where Alice Hawthorne had died on that very tragic Aww. night. Isn't oh, that sweet? sweet? That is sweet. Yeah. And that's the Centennial Olympic Park bombing story. Wow. Yeah. It's the fun. It's a fun one, right? Yeah. Oh, can hear, are the dogs getting dinner or something right now? Yep. Yeah, they're uh, <laughs> applauding you for such a great. Oh, I thought that was such great timing. <laughs> I vaguely remember that because I am a little bit older, so I think I was twelve when that bombing mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. So I vaguely remember it. I remember how much because I drove through Atlanta when they were building everything for the Olympics. Wow, so I just remember, that's cool. Yeah, and so I. I can, it's terrible that they kept going, but then part of me is like, they spent millions, if not billions, on getting Atlanta ready for the Olympics. I can't. I'm not surprised about that. Like, Mm. I've actually mentioned before, the cities no longer even want to take on the Olympics because they most end up losing money because of it, just because you have to build the infrastructure. So it doesn't surprise me at all that they decided, like, no, we need to continue this to to make up the money that. We lost. Although I am surprised because 2003, I think that's when you said he got caught. That's I was 18 then. I, you think I would have watched the news then, but I don't remember that. <laughs> you know, there, I didn't there, watch the news at 18. Yeah. <laughs> I would say the same thing. That's what sometimes my husband, he's a couple years older than me, and he'll say, like, don't you remember when this was on the news? And I'm like, I was doing cooler things than watching the news when I was 21. So... No, I mean, that totally sounds like something I should have been involved in yeah. and engaged, but no, I was not. I was 21 and doing <laughs> Who watched TV then? Yeah. Uh, and we also didn't have smartphones back then either to that get like too. news alerts. Cause I think now, like, even if I am avoiding, I don't have cable, I don't avoid. watch the news. Yeah. It just comes to my phone if anything yeah. happens. Yeah, it's just such a tragic incident, the whole thing all the way around, you know, people Mm -hmm. losing their lives and Jewel being blamed. So, Ashley, you were kind of nodding along. Have you seen the Richard Jewel movie and or have you watched the Netflix series? I've watched the Netflix series. My husband and I did. Yeah, so good. Yeah, the one piece of that series that really frustrated me was the whole piece of the like, right winged militant group. Fortunately, in all the research that I've done, I shared what we know, like, Mm -hmm. we know that there were people that supported him, but just how much they actually assisted him, we don't know. In that show, I was getting heated you know like just how much the neighborhood the community was supporting him in that show yes 
Yeah, and like the stuff that they pulled up on Jewel, like they were like, he has the anarchist cookbook at his house. And (laughs) I was like, I have that in my spare bedroom right now. (laughs) It was the 90s. Everybody had everybody had a copy of that. Like, it's fine. Like, yeah. yeah, And like just seeing how many people uh, supported him. And there's actually I need to remember which episode it is, but there's a Criminal Minds episode that's like loosely based off of it mm. where they go to a town okay. where like it's really right wing and they're all like hiding the killer mm. and it's like oh. extremely similar to that and it just oh, it just makes me so mad. Oh yeah. That's, that's insane. Yeah. 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 I, have, I saw the trailer for the movie and I was meaning to watch it but I haven't gotten to that yet so now I'm inspired to watch it but yeah. yeah it's it's like you want to feel bad for him but yeah, the movie's really good. We went and actually saw it in theaters. I don't know if you guys remember what theaters oh, wow. are. Movie what? Theaters what is that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know, inside a building. Um, the whole place smells like popcorn and booze. And oh. you watch a film on a large Ooh. projector. Yeah, <laughs> I have vague memories. We had just because I moved here a year before lockdown, so. Mm-hmm. This was the first real experience I had with movie theaters where you can get drunk and eat food while you're watching movies. Oh, and yeah. I was just like in it. Like every week we were seeing something and then it yes. went to nothing. And I'm like, no. There was actually a day where Rachel and I played hooky from our jobs and went and met at a movie theater that served alcohol and food. And we just, I don't remember what we saw, though. Do you remember? Those Obviously, were good drinks. Obviously, we drank a lot because no. Um <laughs> I'm trying to remember what did we watch and why did we play hooky? Although I definitely remember going on like a random Wednesday or something. Yeah. I don't know. Well, thank you for having us on your 100th episode. That's so cool. Thank you for coming. You guys are always a delight to have on. And I just, I always have such a great time when you're here. I know. I re- we really do have fun joining you. Well, so. so fun talking about bombs. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Only only you guys can make this. This was so much fun. <laughs> I know. That's what it is always. That's what I was just going to say. It's like we had so much fun. However, we always talk about really awful, tragic things. Yeah. 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 What What else have we done on? I'm trying to remember. Uh, Lizzie Borden. Mm, yeah. yeah. We had some wax. Yes. Had that was some wax. Mother. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then we yes. did LBJ. And oh, his, LBJ. Uh, Jumbo. His, uh, <laughs> Yeah, his jumbo. Oh, that's right. <laughs> his his nutsack, right? Is that what yeah. Oh, it's yeah. like one time Kina and I went hiking, and afterwards I asked her, "Why do I always end up dirty when I'm with you?" Because it's like <laughs> we would go do the color run, or we would go hiking, or like something, and I always ended up filthy. And it's just like now we just hang out and talk about really horrible history. Yeah, horrible. Yeah, still dirty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. still dirty. It's, you still need to take a shower at the end of it. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's the good thing. Like history is heavy, you know. And if it you is. can get a laugh at any point. You need it because it exactly. can drag you down because it can yes. be it can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. So much death. <laughs> so yes. Much, so much sadness. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much again. All right. Well, it was nice to meet you, Ashley. Yeah. Congratulations. Bye. Yes. Thank you. Bye, guys. Well, thank you, Ashley, for being here. I loved it. It was so much oh. fun. I know it's been a journey and this wouldn't have happened without you. So I just want you to make sure that you know how much all of this is because of you too. I appreciate you. You And I love you. You will always be a part of this. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, but shit, like it would not be what it is today. The juggernaut that it is if it weren't for you. So thank you. We make a pretty baby. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Thank you everybody so much for listening to this special centennial celebration of historical AF podcast. I am so incredibly thankful for everybody who has listened, supported the podcast, guested, and just been a part of this amazing 100 episodes. I just can't thank you enough. From the bottom of my heart to your ear holes, just know that I adore each and every single one of you. A special thank you to all my guests. Thank you, Erica from Cheers from the Grave. Thank you, Hemlock from TikTok. Thank you so much, Megan from Spooky Science Sisters. Thank you, Nash from You Totally Made That Up. Thank you, my dear friend, Luciano. And thank you, Rachel and Leah from Hashtag History. You guys have all been so incredible. I had so much fun this episode, and I learned a lot. I mean, we really hit some of the highest points. We got to talk about Rasputin and Caligula. We got to talk about fart jokes and, you know, it just was a great episode and I am just so excited it all came together so well. <laughs> I also want to apologize for it being slightly late. It was totally on brand that my laptop would completely crash and try to delete everything as I was getting this up. So thank you for being patient and thank you for being kind. I also want to say thank you again for everybody being so incredibly supportive with everything that went down this week. If you don't know and haven't been following me on social media, I've had a really rough week. I was flying high after recording this episode. And then the next day I was hit with an email saying that the website had a copyright infringement claim and a bill for almost $5,000. So after a lot of panic, I did get a lawyer and I'm trying to work on it. I do you guys know me. I obsessively cite things and I definitely try not to, you know, steal anything, obviously, but I always search for public domain photos for the website and the social media. And it turns out that even with all the filters on and checking as much as I can, a few slip past me. And a lot of those were photos that were given to me, but so I'll say if you're a podcast and you use photos, uh, definitely go check that and try not to, you know, make my mistakes. Just wanted to put it out there that I do take it very seriously using things that are public domain or giving proper credit. I did give credit to every photo. I embedded links to where I got them. I cited them and uh, that wasn't enough. So I definitely don't want people to think that I'm out there trying to steal historical photos or anything because that would be literally the last thing I want to do. And it goes against everything I have learned as a historian. So I have gotten a few messages from people asking how they can help because this definitely is very costly. And as you know, I'm unemployed. So if you do want to help, you can join Patreon. That's going to be my lawyer fund right now. <laughs> and just continue to listen and, you know, just be awesome and kind like you are. It helps a lot. I did have a moment in all of this where I just wanted to give up and quit and go hide in a hole. But because you guys are just so incredibly wonderful and I've met so many incredible people all over the world, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't quit. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for a hundred episodes. Again, if you want to join Patreon, that's patreon.com slash historical AF pod. If you don't like the commitment of Patreon and just want to donate, there is coffee. It's ko-fi slash historical AF pod. 
If you'd like to buy merch, that is shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical AF pod, or you can go to the Etsy store where I hand make merch. That is Etsy.com slash shop slash Kenis creations. And that's creations with a K right now. The website is disabled. I have it on private so that I could pull and triple check all the photos that will be up as soon as I can get all that squared away. And that's historical AF podcast.com. If you want to follow on social media, this is AF Pod across the board, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to leave a review, it'd be greatly appreciated. You can do that on Apple Podcasts and also Podchaser has reviews. So thank you guys again for joining us. I'll see you next week for Games Part 1 with three spooked girls. Okay, bye!